0: participated in our service tonight and thank you for coming back Tonight uh, we are continuing our study of the life of Paul. We are looking at his conversion this evening, but not the conversion in the sense of the story on the road to Damascus, but rather, rather trying to get a feel for the great transformation that took place in the life of a Saul becoming a Paul. Now, I have not consistently... Demarcated between Saul and Paul, I do on a couple of occasions, but tonight we're really looking at Paul before his conversion, so we're really looking at Saul. But as we think about this, I have here to really appreciate the transformation that took place in the life of Paul. We must understand the depths of his sinfulness. Um, I personally have a hard time getting my head around. Uh, the depths of Paul's sinfulness. We're going to try to do that tonight. Uh, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself in this way. "This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. That's how Paul looked at his life from his now converted Wisdom and understanding of how he looked at his life prior to his conversion, and he says that he was the chief or foremost sinner, that there was no one more sinful than he. Now, if you think about that for a moment, would we agree with that statement? That there was no one that was more sinful. Than Saul. We might think, well, he lived before the time of Hitler. If Hitler were alive, Paul would have said, I'm the second most sinner, except that there were a lot of people in history that were a lot like Hitler, as we read the Old Testament and the Ninevites, etc., etc., etc. Would we really put what Saul has done in the same level as what a Hitler? would have done is he really that sinful and then that quickly moves to the question was he really in that great need of conversion of being saved and the answer to the second is quite obvious we know that is the case but I want to look at this sinfulness that he speaks of tonight so first so theme Paul is grateful that he has been chosen to do the Lord's work Timothy 1.12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to the service. Number one, Paul has chosen to do the Lord's work despite his previous behavior. Verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So Paul describes himself in three ways before his conversion. First, Before his conversion, Paul was a blasphemer, a blasphemer. A blasphemer is one who dishonors God. A blasphemer is one who is irreverent to that which is sacred. Now when you think of Saul being a uh, a blasphemer, we need to realize that he was of the sect of the Pharisees. They were the most strict religious sect. They certainly would never have taken the Lord's name in vain. In fact, they wouldn't even pronounce God's name so that they wouldn't take his name in vain. Wouldn't even read it publicly, but would uh, substitute the word Adonai for Jehovah. But he says, I was a blasphemer. We must keep in mind that this is Paul's view of himself after conversion. Prior to conversion, he would have seen himself as exalting the person and character of God. He was very religious. However, in his religiosity, he was, in actuality, blaspheming God. He blasphemed God because he was not following God and the scriptures, but rather man's traditions. Listen carefully to what Paul says. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And now, this so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. He had elevated the traditions above the scriptures. The Pharisees were notorious for their adding rules and regulations and authoritative interpretations to the scripture so that those authoritative interpretations of the scripture were of greater significance than the scripture themselves. Uh, In some ways, it's kind of like the Catholic Church in the sense that The Pope speaks ex cathedra, meaning that the Pope speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ. He's referred to the vicar of Christ. He is Christ's word for today. So he has the divine authority to interpret Scripture. Well, the Pharisees view themselves as those that were the uh, interpreters of Scripture... And so they studied the fathers, the traditions, more than they studied the scriptures themselves. And that belittles the word of God, and that belittles God himself, and the whole concept of inspiration. And so Paul says, I was a blasphemer. And then certainly he was a blasphemer, in the sense that the scripture says that if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father also. And uh, as he's trying to stamp out Christianity, He certainly is not honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And in not honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not honoring the Father also. But D, his beliefs were not those of David. We need to keep in mind that these Pharisees are lost people. Jesus... Continually rebukes the Pharisees and said, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, they were upset with that because Jesus was saying, Unless you guys get a different kind of righteousness than you have, you don't have any part in the kingdom of heaven. You're lost. You're lost. We need to make a differentiation. Between the Judaism of David and Isaiah and all the great patriarchs of the faith and the Judaism of the New Testament, and especially as it's found in the persons of the Pharisees, we need to realize that just because a person was a Jew in name only didn't mean that they were actually in a right relationship with God, nor did they believe the Scriptures in the way in which they should. Jesus repeatedly said to the Pharisees, you err not knowing the Scriptures. Okay, You guys are making a mistake. Search the Scriptures. They speak of me. But they were unwilling to do that. They were looking at their tradition. I say that because we need to understand that the same is true within Christendom. Just because a person says that they are a Christian... Just because a church opens its doors, just because there's a Bible on the pulpit, just because there are people praying, that doesn't mean they're born again. And it doesn't mean they're teaching the truth. There are a host of churches in this area that deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that deny the inspiration of the scriptures. Oh, they pray, and they meet, and they do religious things. But if we understand the lostness of, of Paul, we'll begin to understand the lostness of very religious people. Number two, before his conversion, he was a persecutor. He was seeking to destroy Christians and the church. He was misguided in his aims and purpose. So uh, it says that he was a persecutor. In Acts 8.3, Paul was ravaging the church. The NIV translates that, seeking to destroy the church. Galatians 1.23, they only were hearing, it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. In that destruction of the church, we need to understand two important things. One, Paul was ambitious and self-seeking. Galatians 1.14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. That's how he viewed himself. He was making great strides. And he was getting ahead and making a name for himself. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. That's what caused him to get ahead. The other Jewish leaders said, look at this guy. He's sold out. He's on fire for the traditions. He was rising in places of authority. Probably a member of the Sanhedrin. Here is this guy who is, in his ambition, out seeking to destroy the church. But here's a real key. See, before his conversion... Paul was a man filled with and driven by hatred. I closed our last talk about Saul comparing him to Isis, if you remember. And uh, saying that uh, he was a religious zealot, much like Isis. And you might have thought that that's an overstatement, but look at what he says. 1 Timothy 1.13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and Insolent opponent. Insolent, what does that mean? Well, look at how the NIV translates it. A violent man. NAS, a violent aggressor. Application. Paul was motivated by hatred in persecuting the church. Okay? He was filled with this anger. He was filled with this hatred. He's filled with this animosity. Paul did not want to see people converted. He wanted to see people dead. That's really important to understand. He wasn't out seeking to convert people to what he understood as the truth. Even though he was misguided. And even though he didn't really know what the truth was, he wasn't trying to get people to adopt the truth. Rather, he was just seeking vengeance on them. He didn't witness. He didn't speak of the traditions of the fathers. Rather, he was just trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. I want you to see the contrast. Number two, after his conversion, Paul was motivated by concern and seeking to spare both the physical and eternal life of those who oppose Christ. Brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. After his conversion, Paul is praying to God that God would save those that were lost. Those were not prayers that Saul was offering to God. He was not seeking the salvation. He was seeking the destruction. Number three. After his conversion... If it were possible for him to save others by giving up his own salvation, he would have. Romans 9.3 For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul said after his conversion, If it were possible for me to give up my own salvation so that others could be saved, I would. I would. And number four, this statement was not hyperbole on the part of Paul. There's a remarkable two verses that precedes that statement. For Paul says in three different ways that he's not exaggerating. Because that's pretty hard to believe. That someone would be willing to give up their own salvation so that somebody else would be saved. But Paul says that's the truth. And he says it in three ways. Looking at number four, Romans 9 1. I'm speaking the truth. There he says it plainly. Next, I am not lying. Third, my conscience bears me witness. Okay? So I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. And my conscience is not convicting me over what I'm about to say. What's he saying? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That's wonderful. That's the work of God's grace. That's the transformation. But don't take that and read it back into Saul. That's not who Saul was. That's who Paul was by the grace of God. Taking this man who is filled with hatred, self Ambitious and wanting a name for himself and using the persecution of the church as a means of ga- gaining favor with those in religious position to a place where, if it were possible, he'd be willing to give up his own salvation in order that others would be saved. Number five. If a person is truly saved, their view is Of those who are not saved is not one of hatred, but genuine love and concern. We need to understand that. Because unfortunately, number six, down through the ages, a lot of atrocities were performed in the name of Christ by those who were not born again. The Crusades and Inquisitions serve as classic examples. Okay, There have been great, Atrocities. There, there there have been huge incidences of injustices, of cruelty that have been performed in the name of Christ, of trying to get people, in those people's estimation, in a right relationship with God. But they're not motivated by that. They're motivated by ambition, they're motivated by greed. If you look at the Crusades, it was about land, it was about authority, it was about power, it was in the name of Christ, but it was not in keeping with the teaching of Christ. It was a bunch of unregenerate people that were banding together for selfish, ambitious reasons. We need to be able to make that distinction. And somehow, we have to communicate that distinction in talking to others. Because people lump all Christians together regardless of what they teach, regardless of how they live. They simply say, these are Christians. Well, first and foremost, we must understand who we are. And we must understand that while others will actually bomb abortion centers, will hold posters that are filled with hatred, and tell people they're going to hell without telling them how to be saved, that that's really not what we're about. That that's a whole different realm of what we understand the word of God to teach. And Paul helps us to understand that truth. Number two. Paul is chosen to do the Lord's work because his previous bad behavior occurred while he was an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 1.13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, and now this phrase, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So we want to unpack that statement. He acted ignorantly in unbelief. First, Though Paul was theologically well-trained, he later viewed himself as ignorant. He was theologically well-trained. Acts 2.23, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. He had the best education of his day in Judaism. Gamaliel was the, the most recognized and honored Jewish teacher of the day. In modern terminology, Paul would have had his PhD from Harvard in the law of God. That's what he was studying. But he was studying it from the perspective of the traditions. He was studying it from the perspective of the Pharisees. He was studying it from the perspective of self-righteousness. And so he says, I was ignorant. I didn't understand the word the way that I should have understood the word. He was brilliant, but ignorant. Paul, Saul, though religious at this point, was not converted. For it says in verse 13, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly. And then this word's in unbelief. There is one of the most important statements for us to understand about the word of God when it talks about Paul as being an unbeliever. There are many people today that think that as long as you believe that there's a God, then you must be right with God. Well, at least they believe that there is a God. Is there any question that Paul believed that there was a God? Or, you know, as long as people are sincere, as long as people are dedicated, is there any question that Paul was sincere or dedicated to his religious beliefs? Well, at least they read their Bible. Paul would have memorized large sections of his Bible before his conversion. Well, you know, but they pray. Well, they go to church, he went to synagogue. We need to understand the lostness of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who is the true Christ, the one who is virgin birth, died on the cross, rose again bodily from the dead, and is coming again. And I don't care how religious a person is, if they don't believe that, they are lost. Just grapple for a moment with Paul's lostness. And yet, how religious and dedicated he was. See, though Paul was very religious and saw himself as serving God, after his conversion, he viewed himself as an unbeliever. Paul, Saul, was very devout. Acts 2.23 I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. But it's zealous in, in the light of the way in which his fathers taught him to be zealous for God. Paul says, in reality I was a blasphemer. But I thought that I was being zealous for God. I thought this is what God wanted me to do. But he acted in unbelief. Number one, there are many devoted religious people who are lost. In Acts 22.3, this is uh, Paul on trial. And he says, as he stands <clears throat> on trial, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He's witnessing to all those that are gathered. And he said, you're all religious people. But you stand in need of Christ. I I can't emphasize enough. I I just can't emphasize enough. I I, I pull my hair out as I read book after book after book that is trying to say that as long as people are zealous, as long as people are committed, as long as people are dedicated. It really doesn't matter what they believe. They believe that there is a God. That's enough. No, it's not enough. It's never been enough. Please reflect on the life of Saul. For we have many, 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 many Christians who are lost because of what they believe concerning the scriptures, concerning Christ. We need to understand their lost condition. So number two, it's very important that we understand Paul, Saul's religiosity combined with his lost condition. Such an understanding will help us to grasp the lost condition of many who faithfully attend church, pray, are baptized, and viewed by many as a shining example of what it means to be a Christian and are yet lost. Believing is more than simply believing that there is a God, or even praying, or even being dedicated to one's beliefs. Number three, Paul has chosen to do the Lord's work, and is now a changed man. God was abundantly gracious to Paul in saving him. 1 Timothy 1.14, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Number one, God did not save Paul Paul's reward for his misplaced zeal. But rather, God saved Paul despite of his misplaced zeal. It's important to keep in mind. Not because of, but in spite of. B. God was gracious in the life of Paul because God produced in Paul the faith and love that comes from Jesus Christ. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This grace so overflowed that now he had the faith and love which comes in association with Jesus Christ. He now had faith. No longer in unbelief. Believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And now he had love. A love that comes from Christ. A love that now he is willing to give his own salvation if possible. If others could be saved. God was abundantly gracious to Paul. And uh, since Paul was exceedingly sinful of whom I am foremost. Application. Prior to his conversion, Paul viewed himself as exceedingly righteous and good. Philippians 3.6. This is, of course, that passage of Paul giving his testimony of how he was of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul viewed himself at one point as sinless. As Paul is persecuting the church, he views himself as a righteous individual. A godly individual. He is convinced that he has not violated any of the laws of God. And you you say, well, how could anybody believe that? Well, you have to understand the, the Pharisees. You have to understand the tradition You need to understand that there are people that call themselves Christians who say that they have reached sinless perfection. They have reached complete sanctification. There are people out there with those beliefs. Paul said, I'm blameless. Think of the arrogancy of that. And that's why Paul says, I was a blasphemer. The way I talked about sacred things. To view myself as sinless. When only God is sinless. Two, it is important to realize that Paul, after his conversion, viewed his former life as having been exceedingly sinful. This trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. What a transformation Moving from a place of saying, I'm blameless, to a place that says, I'm the chief of sinners. One of the most difficult things about getting people saved is getting people lost. People don't view themselves, unsaved people don't view themselves as wicked as evil they view themselves as basically good basically moral i try to live a good life you know as you look at at saul he would have been a very moral individual he would not have committed adultery he would not have stolen he would not have lied he would not have cheated he tried, to the best of his ability, to live an extremely moral life. And succeeded to the degree that he was taught. With the interpretation of the scripture that he had, that he was sinless. You know, there are just a lot of people that don't believe they need to be saved. Because they really don't think they're that bad. Or that, that God really wouldn't have a standard of perfection. You know, there are a lot of people that think God on, grades on the curve. And though they may not be sinless, they certainly aren't as bad as a lot of people are. And, and so they think they're going to be in a right place with God. And they may tithe, and they may pray, and they may go to church, and they may do a lot of, of good things. But Paul's changed heart resulted in this changed view. Number three, is this the way we view religious and moral people who are without Christ? Number four, Paul has chosen to do the Lord's work as an example of God's patience and mercy. A, God was extremely patient with Paul. Acts 26.14 And when he had fallen to the ground This course was on the road to Damascus I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads Okay The goads are the, are the, are the, the uh, Prods of a cattle stick Okay they, The goads are this long stick That would be used to Punch a, a cow Or an oxen in the hind legs To get it to go where you want it to go 1 Timothy 1.16, it says, But I received mercy for this reason, that is, in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. God was patient with Saul. God was long-suffering with Saul. God put up with a lot from Saul. B, we're to model the patience and mercy of God in dealing with others. God was patient in dealing with Paul, so now Paul is patient in dealing with others. 2 Timothy 3:10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul now becomes patient with the evildoer. Paul is not seeking to bring evil, or harm, or even justice. To the non-believers around about him. He's patient with them. See, in contrast to forcing people into conformity to one's beliefs, the Christian is to rely upon the Word of God to bring people to faith and conformity. Second Timothy 4:2. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with, and now this statement: complete patience and teaching. Complete patience. Complete patience means that you are relying solely, completely, on the power of the Spirit of God and His Word to bring people to faith. You're not trying to coerce. You're you're not trying to force. You're not trying to come up with some clever way of bringing people to faith but you rely solely on the word of God and his spirit waiting for God to work in the life of an individual Saul had heard Stephen he had heard Stephen's testimony as he would have heard many of those that he was rounding up and putting into prison. And God brought this Saul to faith. If God can bring a Saul to faith, God can bring anyone to faith. And he can. The disciples asked Jesus after he said that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Then the disciples said, Who can be saved? Jesus' response was, With man it is impossible. How can you put a camel through the eye of a needle? You can't, it's impossible. That was the whole point of what Jesus was trying to say. It's impossible. With mankind, it's impossible. But, Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. God can bring the hardest, most sinful individual to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe we need to rethink who the hardest and most sinful person is. Maybe it's not the drunk. Maybe it's not the addicted individual. Maybe it's not the prostitute. Maybe the wicked and most difficult person to save are the self-righteous. The people that think they're good enough by the way they live. Who think that God ought to be pleased that they go to church and sacrifice sometimes in giving money and reading the scriptures. God can save even people like that. Even the self righteous. D. Note how different the approach of Paul is after he's converted. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Don't be argumentative. Don't be combative. Don't fight. Now we're talking about words. We're not even talking about actions. We're not talking about rounding up people and putting them into prison. Now he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, don't get into arguments, don't get into verbal fights, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. In gentleness. What a transformation. 5. Paul is chosen to do the Lord's work as a means of bringing honor and glory to God. To the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I wish I had time to unpack that. I don't. But just look at the transformation. The passage begins with Paul saying, I was a blasphemer. And he ends with, to the king of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory for the transformation that he has made in my life and will make in the lives of others. Saul says, all honor and all glory belongs unto God. For his patience in dealing with me And so Paul tells Timothy to be patient in dealing with others. Don't lose sight of the transformation that takes place in Saul's life. Don't lose sight of the need of Saul to be saved. Again, I I just can't explain enough. Less according to what All the statistics tell us we've gotten to the place where less than 25% of evangelicals believe that there's a hell. There's something wrong, people. Just remember, because people are religious, they pray, they read the Bible. If they don't believe what it says, they're lost. Religious people need to be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to be patient, long-suffering, and kind. Help us not to be combative. Help us not to be argumentative. Help us not to be crude or rude. Oh Lord, help us not to rejoice. When we see in the name of Christ people carrying signs that tell people they're going to hell gleefully, shouting at them and and uh, rebuking them in, in a harsh and evil manner. Lord, help us to understand that that's not your spirit at work. That's not how you've told us to act. Lord, may we never rejoice in anyone's downfall. But Lord, may we truly, truly be concerned about those who don't know Christ. And give us the understanding that those that don't know Christ Or those that don't have a personal saving relationship to the the one who is truly the son of God and the son of man. Born of a virgin. Dying on the cross. I mean lived a sinless life. Dying, rising again and coming again to bring transformation to this world. Oh Lord. Give us a heart. For those that are lost. I pray that at least keep us from hatred. But Lord, also move us from apathy. Move us from indifference. Lord, if if we would see a building on fire, these horrendous fires that are taking place in California and people going up in flames. Lord, if we'd be willing to run into a house to save an individual in their physical life, Oh, Lord, give us a real concern that we're willing to reach out and, and to grab people who are spiritually lost and are going to expend a Christless eternity and that there really is a hell. Oh, Lord, impress upon our own hearts. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.